0: What do I hope my family will say, my friends will say, my associates at work will say? What do I hope they'll be saying about me? Write those things down, put them on the wall, and each day ask, am I becoming that kind of person? That's your mission statement. What would be the mission statement of Jesus? If he was to declare why he had come. Now, there are a lot of answers you could give to that question. Why did he come? Somebody inevitably is going to come and say, he came to deliver us from the punishment of sin. Hey, you can't argue with that one. 2,000 years ago when he got crucified, he took the punishment for our sin. That's why it says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the book of Romans, 8th chapter, 1st verse, when he died there, all the punishment that you deserve, the hell that you deserve, he went through it. He took it upon himself. It all happened 2,000 years ago. We talk about the finished work of Christ. Christ. I was in an airport in Richmond, Virginia, and there was this old guy, an African-American man, dressed to the hilt, handsome, white hair, very dignified, sound asleep, waiting for them to call for the plane to be boarded. And there was this kid working the crowd with the four spiritual laws and got to him, hit him on the knee. Poor old guy woke up. Yeah, what, 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 what is it? He said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? Guy said, yeah, I think so. That's not good enough, he said. Can you tell me exactly when you were saved? The old guy said, well, not exactly. It was almost 2,000 years ago. Just found out about it recently. Now that's not bad theology, is it? 2,000 years ago it was a done deal. Don't be afraid of being punished on Judgment Day. I know you are very afraid of that. Don't have to be afraid. Jesus took the punishment. You're off the hook. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You've got to understand that. Not only did He take the punishment, I love this, He forgets that you ever sinned in the first place. Wouldn't you hate to go to heaven if God remembered? You know, He'd look at you and say, we've been waiting for you. During the Watergate hearings, there was this, uh, there was this uh, cassette tape the old folks here will remember that. This tape on which there was a recording of Nixon ordering the cover-up. Nixon on tape committing the crime. America watched and waited on live television as they put the tape on the player. It played to that point where allegedly Nixon committing the crime was recorded. Him telling Alderman and Herlichman to commit the crime. It was on tape. They got to that place of the tape. The tape went dead. We sat there and watched for 18 and a half minutes. Heard nothing because Rosemary Woods, his secretary, had erased the tape. Now, the reason why I tell you that is because I don't know whether they have a tape with all of your sins and all of my sins recorded, but I've got great news. If on that great day they go to play the tape, Jesus has erased your tape. Yeah, that's good. Now, that was a... That was a very proper response, but this is obviously not a Pentecostal gathering here today. If it was, you would have blown the roof off on that one. So I will give you one more chance. I said, Jesus has erased your tape. Your sin, your sin is blotted out, it's buried in the deepest sea. I remember, I love this. It is remembered no more. That's why the scripture says we can enter into His. Presence with boldness. See, now, I, I'm from Philadelphia, and I have learned how to walk with boldness. As a matter of fact, you don't survive on our streets unless you know how to walk with boldness. You know, you stare people down. They back off. You've got to frighten them. That's why when you come to our city, you get mugged. You don't know how to walk with boldness. You come with that St. Paul, Minnesota smile. We kill people like you. But if you come into His presence, you must come with boldness. I mean, I'm going to walk in with boldness. Out of my way, angels! (laughs) I'm going to stand before the judgment seat. Scripture says in the book of Jude, He shall present you to the Father, faultless. Father, I can hear Jesus saying it. Father, I want you to meet my friend Tony, the perfect one. I hope my wife is there. I really hope she's there. Yes, he came into the world to take care of the sin problem. There's no question about that. He came into the world for many reasons. For instance, is a passage that says, I have come that my joy might be in you, that your joy might be full. I mean, there isn't much joy out there in the world. But I got to tell you, when the Spirit of Christ invades you and possesses you and transforms you, there is a joy. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. I, uh, I got to tell you, I was in Chicago and I was supposed to deliver this heavy speech to a group of sociologists in the ballroom. It's 10 o'clock. I'm supposed to be in the ballroom at 10 o'clock. I rushed to the elevator. Got on the elevator. There's only one other person in the elevator. It was this kid. No joy in him. He was just standing there. Hi. He had these pants. I didn't know whether they were long pants or short pants. You know what I mean? (laughs) We got down to the ground floor. The elevator door did not open. I'm late for the meeting. I'm panicked. I'm banging on the door. I'm banging on the door yelling, Somebody out there! Open this door! Get this door open! I'm banging on the door. All of a sudden, the voice behind me said, Sir, the door is open. I turned. It was one of those elevators that had doors on both sides, you know. (laughs) And this kid did not laugh. This kid did not laugh. I grabbed him by the shoulders and I shook him. I said, Kid, laugh! This is funny! He came that the joy might be in us and that our joy might be full. He came to reveal God to us. I mean, you want to know what God's all about? Look at Jesus. As a matter of fact, I didn't know much about God apart from Jesus. In Jesus, the fullness of God is revealed to us. Jesus said, when you look at me, you're looking at the Father, for I and the Father are one. I will reveal what God is all about to you. He came not only to reveal what God is all about... He also came to reveal what it means to be human. You know, everybody, when, when I was a kid coming up of age, everybody was reading Abraham Maslow and what it means to become a self-actualized human being. Well, there was only one self-actualized human being in history. All the rest of us are homo sapiens in the process of trying to become human, but only one ever really made it, and that's Jesus. No wonder he called himself the Son of Man the fullest expression of what it means to be a human being. So He came to reveal God. He came to reveal what it means to be a self-actualized human being. He came to give us joy, deliver us from sin. We could go on and on and on with a host of good answers. But if Jesus was to be asked the question forthrightly, He would answer this way, I have come to declare that the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first words out of Jesus' mouth are these, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Please understand that. Jesus came into the world to transform the world that is into the kingdom of God. When the disciples asked Him, what should we pray for? He said this. Pray for the kingdom. Pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The next line is of crucial significance. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? Please get that. On earth. For any neo-Marxist that may be here who accused the church of preaching pie in the sky when you die by and by, go back to the Lord's Prayer. It's no otherworldly stuff here. It's thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth. On earth. He wants to transform people. He wants to transform society. He wants the kingdom to become a social historical reality in this world. And if you don't get that, you don't get the scriptures. All of his parables are about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like unto a man who does this or a woman that does that. The last thing he says, check the book of Acts, the last thing he says before he ascends into heaven is he teaches them one last time. Those things concerning the kingdom. It's about the kingdom. The kingdom is where God reigns. Does God reign in you? Because the first thing he says is that the kingdom must be in you. The kingdom of God must be in you, is it? Is God the ruling presence of your life? As you make existential decisions... Do you ask God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to act? How do you want me to behave? Do you, in fact, allow God to be the deciding voice in the dialogue that you carry on within your head? All of us talk to ourselves. We just don't... You know, when you get old, you, you, you learn to do it without moving your lips. <laughs> and as you carry on that conversation, should I or shouldn't I, do you allow God to come in and enter the conversation and dictate the answer and do you follow that answer? Is God in you is the kingdom of God within you let me just say I, I start every day getting up a half hour before I have to and I always spend time in silence in stillness in quietude that's my real prayer time oh I do something at night before I go to bed I make my request known unto God not because God is waiting to be informed I mean you don't really think God's up there saying "Joe, I wonder what Tony really needs I hope he tells me because if he doesn't I won't have a clue God, says the Scripture, knows what you have need of when? Before you even ask. I mean, if you say, Dear Lord, Sister Mary is sick in the hospital. What do you think God's saying? Whoa. I didn't know that. Which hospital? God knows what you need before you even ask. So I make my request known to God in the evening because, you know, we have to recognize our dependency on God. And that's what that's all about. Not informing God, but establishing dependency. But, you know, even when you pray, your, your prayers are stupid anyway. I didn't want to say that, but I'm, I'm only saying it because the Bible says it. The Bible says you don't know how to pray as you ought to pray. Check it out in the 8th chapter of Romans. You don't know, And I know that to be true. When I was a kid in high school, there was this girl that I knew that God had ordained for me from before the foundation of the earth. And I asked that God would deliver her into my hands. It never happened. I ran into her a few years ago. I was speaking at the University of Washington in Seattle, and there she was. And she came up after and said, Would you like to have coffee? I was thrilled. The old flame was burning. Yes! And we went to a restaurant and we sat down and drank coffee, and she talked and talked and talked and talked (laughs) and talked and talked I remember as I left the place I was humming the doxology (laughs) praise God from whom all blessings flow (laughs) praise Him all creatures here below I mean I was thanking God I mean I didn't realize what a stupid thing I was asking for when I was in high school it would have been devastating (laughs) the truth is that God doesn't give you what you think you want in order that God might provide what you really need gotta get that straight but I've got to tell you, the most important time of praying for me is the morning when I don't say anything to God. I don't ask God for anything. They asked Mother Teresa once, when you pray, what do you say to God? She said, I don't say anything, I listen. So Dan Rather said, all right. <laughs> when you pray, what does God say to you? She said, God doesn't say anything, God listens. And then she smiled and said, If you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. Well, I do understand it. I know what it's like to be in the presence of God and not say anything or hear anything. But feel connected. Feel an intimacy. Feel a communication that does not come in words. I've got to ask you a simple question. When was the last time you gave God five minutes of stillness? Ten minutes of quietude. The Scripture says, Be still and know that I am God. The Scripture says, In quietude and in stillness, You will experience your salvation. How much quiet? When you say quiet time, You generally mean I'm reading the Bible, I'm reading a book, I'm saying a prayer. Yak, 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 yak. Talk, 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 talk. Words, 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 words. Maybe there's a time for stillness. And in the morning, In the quietude and the stillness of the morning, I give God time to love me. And I take time in non-sexual terms to make love to Him. When was the last time you just lay still or sat still and said, God, I want to feel You loving me and sat there for ten minutes and gave Him a chance to do it? No, I'm serious. When was the last time you gave God ten minutes for loving... I mean, if if you were married... And you said to your wife, I love you, but of course, I'm not going to take any time to express this. Um, We're never going to make love to each other. But you know that I love you. That marriage would last long, wouldn't it? Love requires time for expression of love. You want to be with the person. You want to feel that person's presence. You want to sense that person connecting with you emotionally. Well, do you do that with God? That's why we Protestants need to listen to the Roman Catholics, especially those pre Reformation Catholics like Julian of Norwich and Teresa of Avila, who knew how to still be still and in quietude feel God penetrating them, invading them, possessing them, overwhelming them. When was the last time you. You know, most ministers never preach from the Song of Solomon. Because they say, it's far too erotic. Indeed it is. But we do not understand a God who loves us. And we don't, you know, we, we, no wonder most of us are emotionally starved because we never give God even ten minutes a day to surround us, to invade us, to possess us, to change us. Nor do we give Him any time in which we just come. So I wake up in the morning. And I lie in bed in absolute stillness. I have to say His name over and over again to create the stillness. You see, I have to drive back the animals. Which animals? The 101 things that are waiting to be done that the moment I wake up come in to devour me. I've got to drive them back. And so I say, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Because there's something about that name. It creates stillness and quietude. The old African-American spiritual that goes, woke up this morning with my mind, what? Stayed on Jesus. Stayed on Jesus. They understood what I'm talking about. To get so focused. and could not ask God for anything just to connect with Him. Just to connect with Jesus. I let Him cleanse me. I let Him reach out from the cross and touch me and from the cross absorb into His own body all the dirt and darkness of my life. You say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He can't do that. That's a done deal. I mean, it happened 2,000 years ago. Well, most of us know, because of Star Trek and movies like Contact, enough about Einstein's theory of relativity to know that time is relative to motion. All Star Trekkies know that. The Spaceship Enterprise can go forward in time or backward in time. It can move around in time simply by changing its speed. Time is relative to motion, according to Einstein. The faster you travel, the more time is compressed. If I put you in a rocket, sent you into outer space, traveling at 170,000 miles a second, said, come back in 10 years, when you returned, you would be 10 years older. But all the rest of us would be 20 years older. If we got you traveling at 180,000 miles a second, our 20 years would be compressed into one day of your time. If we got you traveling at the speed of light, which we cannot do, because as you approach the speed of light, there would be disintegration because your, your physical body would expand outward in weight and size, in a geometric progression towards infinity. I tell you that because don't let anybody ever say, you're fat, just say, I'm traveling too fast. Just make that very clear. But if it was possible, if it was possible to get you traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, without total disintegration, hear me out, there would be no time. All of history, all of time... Would be compressed into one eternal now. There would be eternal simultaneity. There would be no passage of time. The Bible says the same. And then time shall be no more. Everything would be present tense. That's why Jesus could say on the cross some things that we need to hear. That's why he could say earlier than the cross. Before Abraham was what? Why? Why would he say before Abraham was, I am? What he should have said was what? Before Abraham was, I was. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you go all the way back to Abraham thousands of years ago, that moment is present tense for me. Everything is present tense with me because Jesus on the cross was not only the incarnation of God, but get this, he was the incarnation of God in fullness, which means that Jesus on the cross was not only a man who had never sinned, he was the incarnation of God, and as God... He experienced all of time simultaneously. All of time was happening in one eternal now. That means that right now, as Jesus hangs on the cross, He is simultaneous with you right now, this moment. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. A thousand years is the day. The day is a thousand years because he is God. That means that right now Jesus is looking at you from the cross. And if you will let him, if you will open yourself up, he will reach out from the cross, he will touch you, and like a sponge he will absorb the dark side. And you do have a dark side. Please don't tell me you don't. After President Clinton asked me to help him after the Lewinsky scandal in I knew him before then, but he said, Would you come and meet with me weekly and pray with me and all that stuff? Man, did I get letters from Christian people saying, What are you doing dealing with that man? After what he did? Let me break it to you, people. The difference between Clinton and most of the rest of us is that they haven't found out about the rest of us yet. Let's be, let's be, you know, let's be right up front. I am tired of phony piety, you know, where you get these religious people who act like they're perfect. I don't smoke and I don't dance and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do Oh man that drives me crazy. Man, I want to tell you that I don't know about the women here. I know about the guys here. I do know about I used to think I was the only one with a dirty mind. Then I got to meet some of you guys. And the problem with most of us is we're like the rest of us and we need more than forgiveness. We need to be changed. We need to be cleansed. We need to be purified. And this is the good news of the Gospel that if you'll surrender yourself to Christ, Jesus will reach out from the cross and touch you and He will absorb into His own body there will be transference of all the sins into He not only takes the punishment of sin, He takes the sin itself. He who knew no sin, says the Scripture, on the cross, what? Becomes sin. Whoa, that's heavy. Please, don't... I met a kid at one of our highly Christian schools. I mean, it's not Bethel. It's... it's even more spiritual than Bethel. And as we talked, he said, yeah, I'm still screwing around with my girlfriend, but I believe it's all the punishment was taken care of on the cross. I said to him, you know, the next time you're screwing your girlfriend, I want you to do something. I want you to try to hear Jesus screaming in pain. Because at that very moment on the cross, He is absorbing your sin. He who hates sin, loathes sin, is offended by sin, who is nauseated by sin, He's willing to absorb it into His own body. You dare not sin, says the Apostle Paul, just so that the grace of God may abound. Because in the words of Paul in the 6th chapter of Hebrews do you not realize you're crucifying Christ all over again? You're putting him through agony and pain and suffering right there and then. How dare you sin? Knowing what Jesus has to go through even as you sin. Don't get the idea that it's 2,000 years ago because that's true but what is also true is at the speed of light in the 4th dimension he is simultaneously experiencing your sin even as you commit it and taking it upon himself and absorbing it out of you. But as you surrender to the cleansing of Jesus, this is what happens. The Spirit of God explodes within you. Do you get that? You see, you not only need to be forgiven, and I believe you believe in the forgiveness of sins. I'm sure you believe that Jesus died on the cross. I don't think you'd even be here if you didn't believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. I mean, stop to think about that. You think you're a believer because you decided... Do you really think that on Judgment Day you're going to be able to stand before the Lord and say, I considered all the intellectual options and the marketplace of ideas, and after consideration I gave existential commitment to, he's going to say, shut up. You didn't choose me. You think you chose me? You didn't choose me. I chose you. And my spirit was working in you and drove you to believe in me. You wouldn't believe in me unless my spirit working in you led you to believe. You say, don't I get credit for anything? I can just hear him saying, you want credit, go to the other place. Up here, all glory, Lord, and honor belongs to me. The Spirit is already in you. But here's what the Bible says. The sin in your life smothers it. The Spirit is already in you. But the sin in your life grieves the Spirit. The Spirit is already in you, says the Bible. But the sin in your life quenches the Spirit. It's a lid on it. But in the stillness of the morning, in the quietude of the morning, as I surrender to Jesus, as He reaches across time and connects with me and absorbs that dirt and that filth into His own body, as He cleanses me, the Spirit is released. Here's what it says in First 1 John 1, 1.9. If you will confess your sins, He is faithful, He is just. He will forgive you. That's the cross thing 2,000 years ago. He will cleanse you. He will forgive you, and then it says, and He will cleanse you two things. Forgiveness is what he did for you. Taking the punishment is what he did for you 2,000 years ago. That's what Jesus did for you back there and then. Listen to the difference. That's what Jesus did for you. The real question this morning is this. What are you willing to allow Jesus to do to you right now? You're forgiven because of what he did. You're cleansed if you surrender in the here and now and let him absorb the dirt and the darkness out of you into his body. And insofar as you are cleansed, this is what will happen. Are you ready? The spirit that lies dormant, crushed, smothered, will be released. Jesus Jesus says, and it shall be in you like a fountain of living water. This thing will explode inside of you. An energy of God will flow through your being, through every nerve and sinew of your being. You will be alive in God. One morning I got up and I had a time with Jesus. It was incredible. I felt Him cleansing me. I felt the spirit exploding inside of me. I felt myself fully alive in crisis. I went down to get a plane to go to Chicago. But I got to the airport late and they gave me a middle seat between two fat guys. And they had already claimed the armrests. You know, you have got fight for the armrest. They had already gotten the armrest. The guy on my right was tense. This big guy. I mean, he was squeezed up against my arm. I could feel the tension in his arms. It was summer. I was wearing a t-shirt. He was wearing, and I could feel the tension. I looked over. He's biting his thumb. There's beads of perspiration on his brow. I could see he's upset. I could have turned to him and said, Sir, I see you're troubled. You need Jesus, but I can never pull that off. (laughs) So I did the next best thing. I didn't say anything to him, but I was so alive with God. The Spirit was so raging within me. I didn't say a word. I just leaned on him. and I let the dynamism of God flow. You say, Campolo, you are talking about the Holy Spirit as though the Spirit is some kind of energy force that flows out of you and can flow into other people that you touch. That is exactly what I'm saying. You got it. I'm, I'm talking about a Jesus walking down the road. And a diseased woman reaches out and touches the hem of the garment. Do you remember this? He stops and he says who touched me, I felt power go out of me. And you're going to say, but that's Jesus. And I am here to say what it communicates in the 8th chapter of Romans, that the same power that was in Christ Jesus shall be in your mortal bodies. And it was in me that morning, and I let this guy have it all the way to Chicago. I just, you know, As the plane touched down, I said, God, if you want me to talk to this guy... You're going to have to give me a sign. You know, the Gideon thing, a sign. No sooner had I said that than this guy turned to me and he said, Mister, I'm in deep trouble, deep trouble. I need God. I was looking for something more specific, you know. And We went into the cafeteria and over the next hour, I led him into a personal relationship with Jesus. Having having said that, I want to communicate to you that it wasn't because I had a clever presentation, a brilliant theological exposition. It wasn't because I came to Him, says the Apostle Paul, with excellency of words. It's because I came to Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, there's a lot of talk in the Christian community, and that's all it is. It's talk. There's not power. That kid that you can't talk to anymore. I wonder how many of you have kids you can't talk to anymore. When you start talking to them about God, about Jesus, about what they're doing with their lives, they roll their eyes back and say, are you finished? Can I go now? Oh man, do I have to listen to this again? And you say, what do I do now? I've said it all over and over and over again. What do I do now? Maybe the time has come to shut up and just get so filled with the Spirit that you can come and put your arm around that kid and let the power of the Spirit move into him. Because the Holy Spirit can do what your words can never do that 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 person you you 're trying to that husband you can 't get through to that wife you cannot communicate with maybe the time has come for you not to communicate in words, but to come in the power of the spirit I, I was just leaving my lecture hall at the University of Pennsylvania. I taught there for ten years, and I just finished my lecture and I Got to the corner of 34th and Spruce Street, and the Duck Lady came up alongside of me. She was a. We called her the Duck Lady because she wandered around the campus and incessantly quacked. Quack, 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 quack. quack. Never stopped. Not for a moment. Anybody who went to Penn during those years would know about the Duck Lady. She seemed to be omnipresent, and I heard her coming. Quack, 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 quack. Came right up alongside of me. She stood there. I turned, and I looked at her. She looked at me. And in that moment, I didn't look at her, but I looked into her eyes. There's a difference, you know, between looking at a person and looking into a person. I poured myself, I poured the power of the Holy Spirit into her. With the dynamism of God, I reached down into the depths of her being. And I connected. She stopped her quacking. I had never known her to do that. No one that I knew... And you talked to people from Penn who were there. She was wandering around the campus for a quarter of a century and I had never known her to stop her quacking. She stopped. She looked around with an air of wonder and she said, It's lovely. It's lovely. And before I could say anything more, the light changed. Someone bumped her. I watched her head shake and she fell back into her schizophrenic condition and she started quacking again. And she wandered down the street and disappeared into the crowd and as I stood there, shock. I thought if only I could have stayed connected with her for just two or three minutes more if only in the spirit I had established oneness for a longer period of time then perhaps the deliverance would not have been momentary you say but you're a social scientist surely you believe in psychiatry, psychotherapy of course I do but I'm here to say that after the psychotherapist and after the psychiatrist have done all they can and failed, it's not over. There is still a bomb in Gilead. There is still a bomb in Gilead. And there is a healing that can take place in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the power of the Holy Spirit. Is the kingdom of God within you? Has Jesus taken control of you have you surrendered in stillness? Have you yielded to a cleansing? Has the Holy Spirit exploded within your being so that you were able to connect with people? Because if that happens, here will be the evidence. You will feel Christ waiting to be loved in other people. Whenever you encounter other people, you will encounter Jesus. St. Francis of Assisi said that other people, particularly the poor and the oppressed, are sacramental. I love that. Sacramental. Whenever I say sacrament, all the Catholics in the congregation get happy. <laughs> that's right. About time we got onto that sacrament stuff. Indeed. <laughs> in Holy Communion, Catholics with reverence say that the bread becomes the body of Christ and the wine becomes the blood of Christ. I'm not here to argue theology, I'm just saying that's what they believe. At the other end are people like me. We're Baptists. We believe that in the Holy Communion the bread stays bread and the wine is changed into grape juice. That's that's Baptist theology. <laughs> we have our own version of transubstantiation. Grape juice. In the middle are the Anglicans and the Lutherans and they believe that the bread stays bread and the wine stays wine. But coming in and through the elements is the real presence of Christ. So that Christ is there in the elements. I don't know whether they're right or wrong, but what Francis is saying is this. That when you meet the poor and the oppressed, Jesus is a real presence in them. Waiting to be loved. Waiting to be encountered. I'm walking down Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. A bum comes towards me. She, he's filthy, dirty, kicked with soot from head to toe. The thing that was most distinguishing was his beard. It seemed to go off in all directions, hanging down at least to his waist. Rotted food stuck in the... I mean, it was a despicable sight. He's staggering down the street, holding in his cup, hand a cup of McDonald's coffee. The lip of the cup is already smudged because of the filth on his beard. He spots me and he says, Hey, mister! You want some of my coffee? (laughs) Sheesh. I knew that I had to affirm his generosity, this poor guy, this derelict. I took his cup and I took a sip and I gave it back to him and cringed. I said, thanks. I said, what's gotten into you today? Giving away your coffee to strangers? How come you're giving away your coffee? He said, well... The coffee today was especially delicious. And I figure if God gives you something good, you ought to share it with people. I said, Oh man. This guy has set me up. It's going to cost me $10. I said, I know you want something in return, don't you? He said, Yeah. I want a hug. I was hoping for the $10. I put my arms around him, he put his arms around me, and then I realized something. He wasn't going to let me go. He was holding on in the back of my jacket, just holding on. People are passing on the streets or staring at me. I'm embarrassed. But little by little, the embarrassment turned to awe and reverence because I could hear Jesus saying, I was hungry, did you feed me? I was naked, did you clothe me? I was sick, did you care for me? I was the bum you met on Chestnut Street. Did you hug me? Because if you fail to do it unto the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you fail to do it unto me. Note it says to the least of these, my brothers and sisters. Please understand that if you meet Osama bin Laden face to face, you need to look into his eyes and see Jesus staring back at you. You say, I can't find Jesus in, in Bin Laden. He's too evil. The Bible never said what you do to the best of these. The Bible says what you do unto what? The least. Is he the least? You say, he's the worst human being on the face of the earth. Fine. You love Jesus to the extent that you can love the least of the brothers and sisters. You say, what? I, don't know. I don't know. where. Yeah, that's exactly the point. Scripture says this. How can you say I love a God you can't see if you can't love this man who you can see? Oh, that's cutting it down to the bottom line. But in reality, it changes the way in which you relate to people. You want to create the kingdom of God for them. I head up a missionary organization that does a lot of work, not only in urban America, but in the third world. We just opened up a hospice in Harare, Zimbabwe, which is having elections today, and we don't know what will happen to our work there. But I work there is an AIDS hospice for children who have lost both mother and father because of AIDS and have the disease themselves. There's about 10,000 children in Harare who don't have a mother or father, and nobody will take them in because they have the disease themselves and they're covered with sores and they're starving. Sometimes people leave food out hoping that the kids will come and get them, but for the most part they starve. It takes them about four to five months to die, and they will die. We have about a hundred of them. We don't do much. We just clean them up and diminish the pain with medicine and give them some food and hold their hands because no kid should die on the street hungry and alone. In Haiti, we have a network of 95 schools for Restavecs. These are children that come from families that are so very, very poor that the families have to give away the oldest child because they can't feed all the children. Those who take in the Restavecs, which is Creole for live-ins, exploit these kids abused them, sexually torture. I mean, it's awful what happens to these kids. Out of this country of six million people, there's about a quarter of a million rest of X. We run 95 schools. We have to hold our classes from five in the afternoon till nine at night because the kids have got to do their slave labor all day long. They've got to carry the water, cut the grass, cut the sugar, cook the meals, wash the clothes. But they know that if they can learn how to read and write and do arithmetic in a country where there's 85% illiteracy, they've got a future. I go down and check on the work periodically. I got out of the van, I'm walking to the entrance of the holiday inn where I stay in in Port au Prince and I got intercepted by three girls. The one in the middle said, You're gonna have me for ten dollars. I was shocked. I, I looked at the other one, I said, What about you? It looked like she was about sixteen, fifteen. Do I get you for ten dollars? She said, Yes. I said to the third one and you She tried to conceal her contempt with a smile, but it's hard to look sexy when you're 16 and selling your body to an old man. I said, I'm in room 210. I've got $30. I'm hiring all three of you for the night. I rushed up to the room. I got on the phone. I called down to the concierge desk. I said, I want every Walt Disney video you've got in stock. Anything of Disney, send it to room 210. I'm Baptist. I'm not Southern Baptist. I called down to the restaurant. I said, do you still make banana splits? Because if you do, I want extra ice cream, extra whipped cream, extra everything. I want them huge. I want them delicious. I want four of them. The girls came, and the videos came, and the banana splits came, and we sat at the edge of the bed, and we watched... Disney till about one in the morning. That's when the last of them fell asleep across the bed. And as I sat in the stuffed chair looking at those little bodies strewn across the bed, I thought to myself, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Tomorrow they'll be back on the streets selling their little bodies to dirty, filthy johns because there will always be dirty, filthy men who will destroy girls for $10 a night. Nothing's changed. And then the spirit spoke. And said for one night for one night you let them be kids again for one night you let them have a taste of the kingdom of God thy kingdom come thy will be done where in room 210 in the Holiday Inn in Port-au-Prince you are called to change the place where you are into the kingdom of God to be an agent of transformation an agent of change I have a friend she she works she works at a church out in Bel Air, California there's a Nordstrom's department store there that's really upscale but in Bel Air, California it's upper upper scale Christmas she loves to go into the store. She can't afford to buy anything. It's too expensive, but she loves the ambience. There's live music, singing, violin playing. The decorations are magnificent. She just loves to wander through the store. She's up on the top floor, pretending she's shopping. She's got a Nordstrom's shopping bag filled with tissue paper. Yeah. <laughs> Looking around. The elevator door is open. Out steps a bag lady. Just stringy hair dirty clothes just standing there looking around wild like Claire said I fully expected that a couple of security guards would come and get her and usher her out, that doesn't happen instead a stately saleswoman comes over and says can I help you madam Claire was amazed, this woman obviously didn't have the money to buy anything and the least expensive dress on this floor was a thousand dollars woman said, yeah, I want a dress. What kind of dress? A party dress. You've come to the right place. We have evening gowns. They're of the finest order. Indeed, they did. The least expensive, as I said, was a thousand bucks. They went over to a rack of dresses, and for about 15 minutes, the saleswoman talked about which dress would look best on her with her eyes and her hair. and With such respect, such gentleness, Claire was flabbergasted. Finally, the woman said, "Uh, uh, look, uh, let's take these four dresses and go into the dressing room and let's try them on. I, I, just want to see, I just want to see how you look in these dresses. And they go into the dressing room. Claire said, I hustled into the dressing room right next to it and leaned against the wall. I wanted to hear this. Finally, the, the bag lady said, I've changed my mind. I've changed my mind. I, I'm not going to buy a dress today. The bag lady said, that's quite all right. Here's my card. Should you come to Nordstrom's again, would you ask for me? I would consider it such a privilege to wait on you again. Claire said, is this woman crazy? The bag lady left, and as the saleswoman emerged from the dressing room with the gowns in her arms, Claire went up to her. She wanted to ask what that was all about. She didn't ask anything. She saw a pin on the woman's lapel that simply said, W. W-J-D. What would Jesus do? She had taken the top floor of Nordstrom's and transformed it into what? Kingdom of God. No pie in the sky. The transformation of things here and now. We've got to be agents of transformation. My time is just about up because I would like to take you to the macro level and say we not only have to change the places where we work, we've got to change this country. We've got to change the attitudes of people in this country. I know that this is the time of super patriotism, but i got to tell you, we're not going to end terrorism by killing all the terrorists. Because every time we kill one, guess what? We create three more to take its place. You think that... I mean, can't you see what's happening in the Middle East? Sharon thinks he's going to beat the Palestinians into submission. Oh, they set off a bomb. We'll send in our bulldozers and knock down 70 of their houses and make 700 of them homeless, and then they'll Stop. No, what you've just done is created 700 people who will return evil for evil. And my Jesus says, my kingdom is a place where you don't return evil for evil. You turn good for evil. You say, well, well, what do you do if your enemy is out to get you? You pray for your enemy. You do good to those who would hurt you. And those who live by the sword die by the sword. We've got to deal with the poverty and the injustices that breed terrorism. And we're not doing that. We still think we're the most generous country in the face of the earth, don't we? Right. Out of the 17 industrialized nations in the, United, in the world today, we are dead last in per, capita giving, in per capita giving to the poor of the world. What that means, quite simply, is that for every dollar that people in Norway give to the poor of the world, the United States gives one. It's a 70 to 1 ratio. We still delude ourselves into thinking we're living in the days of the Marshall Plan. You say, but we export so much. Seventy percent of all American exports that are given in foreign aid are arms. If your enemy hungers, give them a gun. We have two names for everything. When they're killing our enemies, we call them freedom fighters. I mean, where do you think Bin Laden came from? Where do you think the Al-Qaeda came from? Do you think they just kind of got together and said, let's do this? When the Russians had invaded Afghanistan, we gave Bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda huge guns, tanks, planes, everything they needed. Because they were killing Russians. One day they decided that the Russians are gone. Now it's time to kill Americans. Suddenly we don't call them freedom fighters, we call them terrorists. We should have never started that road in the first place, should we? When our enemy hungers, you feed them, you don't give them guns. We've got to rethink things on the macro level as well as the micro level. You say, what do you want to do? You want to be one of these people that changes the whole world? You're talking in ways that are politically dangerous. And I ask you, when did Christianity cease being politically dangerous? Because that's when it ceased being Christianity. i got to tell you, they didn't put Jesus on the cross for telling people to be nice to each other. They put him on the cross because they sensed that he had a vision of a kingdom a new society where justice and love would pervade and where people would beat the swords into plowshares and learn war no more. He had a vision of a kingdom where the hungry would be fed and the naked would be clothed. And he had a vision of a kingdom. I've been glad to be with you today. You've been fun. Considering that this congregation is overwhelmingly white. You know, I don't want to be nasty, but if you have to talk to white people, you'd know how hard it is. You can say anything to white people. I just returned from the moon. I mean, in my church, I belong to a black church. Don't get the wrong idea. I didn't join a black church to be some kind of statement. It was a white church, and you folks moved into my neighborhood. You're always moving in. We think we moved away from you. Turn around. There you are. So, you know, the church the church went black. And we never left for two reasons. First of all, we had donated the offering plates. We don't you know, you don't leave your offering plates. I notice you you don't have that problem here, that plastic thing, that's no big deal. But these were nice brass The other thing was there were Italians. We don't move. And I love preaching in my church because you know how you're doing. I don't know how I'm doing here. I hope I did all right. But I I don't know how. Yeah, Thank thank you. See, see. Now in my church, even when you're not good, they let you know. One time I'm halfway through a sermon. And I heard some lady in the back yell, Help him, Jesus, help him, Jesus. And I knew it wasn't going well. Once a year in my church, we have a we have Student Recognition Day. Students come back from college, and one by one, they come to the rostrum and tell the people what they're doing. This is a glorious day in Mount Carmel Baptist Church. Studying engineering at MIT. My, my, you'll hear. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Studying law at Harvard. Oh,
1: yes, 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 yes.
0: <laughs> Studying music at Juilliard. Oh,
1: my, 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 my.
0: You think you've heard great music, but you haven't heard the greatest music. So you've heard about five or six hundred grandmothers and grandfathers moaning and groaning, the moans and groans of joy because their grandchildren are becoming what America never let them be. And when they were finished. The pastor got up and he looked at these kids. Some 40-some of them. The cream of the crop, the brightest and the best. And he said, Joe He talks like that. Children, you're going to die. You are going to die. That's a good thing to tell kids. He says, you don't think you're going to die. You're going to die. They're going to take you out to the cemetery. They're going to drop you in a hole. They're going to throw dirt in your face. And they're going to go back to the church and eat potatoes out of it. So when you were born, you were the only one that cried. Everybody else was happy. Not important. Here's what's important. When you die, will you be the only one that's happy? And everyone else will cry. Depends on what you're living for. Are you living for titles or testimonies? That's black preaching. It's got poetry to it. Rhythm. It's beautiful. I mean you're working to get all these titles doctor this, master that, bachelor. that's just gonna have a tombstone with all your titles? Well, are there are going to be people gathered around your grave, giving testimonies of how you changed the world for them. Then he did what only a black preacher can do. He swept through the Bible in five minutes. <laughs> White preachers can't do that. They get bogged down. You know, today we're going to exegete the second verse of the third chapter of... <laughs> This guy started in Genesis and went through Revelation. He said, there was Moses. There was Pharaoh. (laughs) Pharaoh had the title, ruler of Egypt. That's a good title. But when it was over, that's all he had. He had a title. But Moses had testimonies. (laughs) He said, there's Jezebel, queen Jezebel. That's a good title, queen. She was going to destroy Elijah, the prophet of God. But when it was over, all she had was a title. She had the title. But Elijah had the testimony. It's getting to you. We're going to de this group before it's all over. He said there was Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, threw Daniel into the lion's den. But when it was over, all Nebuchadnezzar had was a title. He had the title. But Daniel had the testimony. People... My pastor's right. One of these days, they will drop you in a hole and throw dirt in your face, and they will go back to the church and eat potato salad. And when it's all over, what will you have amounted to? Will you have been a kingdom builder that had changed the world for people? Will your life have counted for the kingdom? Will you have wiped away the tears of the sorrowful, the poverty of the oppressed? Will you have stood up for those who had no voice? I wish for you both titles and testimonies, but if you've got to make a choice, you go for the testimonies, and I call upon you in the name of Jesus, to do this. Listen, from Romans 12:2, I beg of you that you give yourself over this morning as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service don't be conformed to this world don't buy into its allurements of wealth and power and prestige but surrender to the Holy Spirit let him cleanse you let him change you let him make you alive in the spirit let him enable you to touch other people Let him make you into a voice for justice on behalf of those who have no future. To Stand up for people who have been kicked in the teeth to say, Jesus, here I am. Whatever you want me to do, I will do. Whatever you want me to be, I will be. Wherever you want me to go, I will go. Pray with me. Pray with me now. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, I have a simple question to ask. You believe in Jesus. We've already ascertained that. Big deal. The Bible says Satan believes. He's theologically orthodox. That doesn't do anything. Satan has never surrendered himself and said, Jesus, take me and make me into an instrument of peace and hope for a warring, hopeless world. Make me an instrument of justice. Make me a voice that wins people to you as Savior and God Satan's never surrendered you believe in Jesus you say yeah I'm a believer the Bible never said we were to make believers out of everybody he said go into all the world and make disciples so I'm asking the believers here who know that that's only part of it to go all the way and say Jesus I crossed the line I want my life to count. I need to be cleansed this morning because there's filth in me that needs to be removed. There are changes that have to take place. There's so much about me that needs to be purified. I want to surrender to you so that you can change me, not just so that I can go to heaven when I die but so that Holy Spirit can explode within me and lead me and use me and enable me to touch others, to voice for others, to work for others, to change the world so that on that day I will have testimonies. How many of you are willing to cross the line today and say, yeah, I'm a believer, but I'm going to go beyond that. I'm going to become a disciple. I'm going to allow Jesus to cleanse me. I'm going to make time each day for quietude and solitude to get cleansed, to get purified. I want the kingdom within me and I want to connect with people and love people and be with people and change people. I want to be a kingdom builder. I want to surrender myself to you, Jesus. And I want you to change me into what you want me to be. You're ready to make a commitment. You're ready to cross a line. You're ready to say, I'm serious now. It's everything to you, Jesus. If that's your decision this morning, would you raise your hand wherever you are right now? Yeah. I see hands going up all over the place. God bless you. You can put them down. Thank you for those who have made commitments today. You know that for each of them, it's unique, it's special. It's not generalized. Speak to them in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I dismiss you, two things. First, if you raise your hand this morning, I ought to tell you something. If you're dead serious, if you are going all the way with Christ, let me warn you. There is a power called Satan. And Satan has legions. And the moment you cross that line, you can expect that the demonic will come against you. And that's why I'm asking you that if you raise your hand, there'll be some people up here in the front. There'll be some people in the back table. And they will want to pray for you. Let me assure you, you will need prayer if you're to live out your commitment. So take a few moments, and after this thing's over, come up and pray with the people here. Or better still, there's a table back there with, I think, some literature and stuff that they want to give you. But most of all, they want to pray with you.